This is Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And this is John Halsman as we go through The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism. What was I thinking? This is a chance for me to explain the thinking that went into each chapter of my book, again, now available gloriously for pre-order on Amazon in both the U.S. and the U.K. And please do, uh, as a community, pre-order the book today. Uh, the media tour for the book starts next week. The unofficial media unveiling is next week. I think it's midweek Wednesday. I'm in Washington, coincidentally, all next week to meet with the PR team as we really begin the push for the book over the next five or six months, which is how these things are done nowadays. But to our community, to our loyal fans, and uh, the wonderful group we've, we've assembled through Substack, uh, when we talk through all these things, I'm trying to explain what I was thinking chapter by chapter. So please do pre-order. You're getting an advanced taste of what a writer actually thinks when he goes about the mystical process of writing. And today it's one of my favorite chapters. William H. Seward is one of the, these guys. He was Secretary of State to Abraham Lincoln that I want to Tarantino-wise, that I want to make as John Travolta did, was made by Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction to really resurrect his career because like Travolta, a lot of good work there is forgotten. And William H. Seward is one of the most underrated Secretaries of State of all time easily the second best Secretary of State of the 19th century to, of course, John Quincy Adams, who we talked about in Chapter 2. But Seward is easily the second best and is a truly great Secretary of State. And it's not too much to say that with the Trent Affair, he saved the Union. And what he realized was our third realist precept, which is to act or not to act depends on the national interest. That we get caught in this silly name-calling that uh, people have these ridiculous views that isolationists in America say never act, and neoconservatives and Wilsonian hawks say always act, and this is idiotic. Of course, the answer and when the United States ought to act, ought to intervene militarily or even less so depends on the circumstances. It isn't to always act or to never act and throw bricks at the other person. Both are for children. The answer is that when do you act? Sometimes is always the answer, and when is that sometimes? It depends on the national interests of the country, that we should always be arguing about what primary national interests are. When they're at stake, we should act. When they're not at stake, we very much shouldn't act. And that often it's not doing things that matters as much as doing them. And the William Seward example with the Trent Affair is a good example of this being true. And this is totally, it seems sensible, reasonable, but it's not. That the foreign policy blob, the establishment of which I am a dissenting member, uh, tends to be completist. I don't know how many Council on Foreign Relations meetings I've been to, and this is the ultimate club of the totally failed U.S. foreign policy establishment. They're completists. They look at any problem and they say, you have to, you have to list every single interest that's there. I remember going to meetings, and if I didn't mention one of the 15 interests that was there, that they would be like some school marm from the 1880s, mark me down if I didn't mention every possible impulse that might drive the United States. And this is entirely wrong. Rather than mentioning everything, they should mention the two or three primary things that are at stake and let the rest ride. The very way they go about thinking, this laundry list approach of modern foreign policy, which probably comes from them going to American universities, I was blessed by going to St. Andrews in Scotland, where the answer is, what are the primary historical forces at play and we'll let the rest go? 
Rather, the American answer at higher education seems to be you have to be a completist. You have to list everything. If it's 2% of the answer, it needs listing. And this means you're never talking about what's of vital importance, what's of secondary importance, and what would be nice on a Tuesday. By not doing this, they miss the entire essence of being alive, that you should focus on the important. And William Seward did do this in response to today's foreign policy blob, which lists every possible threat to the United States without rating them in terms of our national interests. Seward listed only what was important, and in the Trent Affair, this helped him save the country. Seward himself is personally, and I talk about this a ton in Chapter 3, I'm going to whiz through this, but please do read it in Chapter 3, a really interesting life. He had an unsung career, again, I want to Tarantinoize him, um, in a Travolta way, because as Lincoln's Secretary of State, he always seemed William Seward about to be groomed for the starring role, and he always ended up an important supporting actor, but never in the starring role. Nor, nowhere was this more true than in 1860. The Democratic Party over slavery is in a shambles. It's, it's divided between William Douglas and Breckinridge, uh, James Breckinridge, John Breckinridge. And so William Douglas and John Breckinridge are dividing the Democratic Party. So the new Republican Party, which only came into being at a presidential level in 1856 with John C. Fremont, the new Republican Party is going to win the presidential election because the Democratic Party is split in at least two ways. And if you count Bell, three ways, Breckinridge, Bell, and Douglas in three ways. And so whoever gets the Republican nomination is going to be president. And everyone overwhelmingly assumes it's going to be William Seward. Why? He'd been governor of New York, an anti-slavery man from back in the kind of anti-Jacksonian days that, that he'd started. Uh, he'd been a Whig and anti-Jacksonian, and he drifted through the free soil movement into the Republican Party. And he'd been governor of New York, and in the 1850s, the most eloquent and talented anti-slavery senator as Senator New York. And so everyone pretty much assumed that the nomination was swords for the having, and yet he didn't get it. Instead, we're stuck, as he says, and he was bitter about it to the end of his days, with Abraham Lincoln. And why did this happen? Because in 1860, the Republican delegates realized three things. One, Seward, uh, Seward's fame got in his way. He was seen as the face of anti-slavery uh, thinking in the United States politically. And if the South was to be kept in the Union, although he and Lincoln had actually, ironically, identical positions on slavery, it would be tolerated in the South, but would not be allowed to expand it in the Western territories. They had exactly the same position. But here Seward's fame got the better of him. By being more famous, the South saw him as the boogeyman, that if Seward is going to be the presidential nominee and then the president, they're out. And so any hope of keeping the South in the Union meant picking the lesser-known Lincoln, where the South did not instinctively assume that he was a boogeyman. Though we saw this calculation of the Republicans didn't work, that Lincoln on his own when he wins, the South says that's it, precisely because he and Seward ironically share the same position over slavery, which is tolerated in the South, but no expansion to the Western territories. But that was the thinking. The second bit of thinking was that Seward was too close to what was known as bossism, one of his best friends and his patron was Thurlow Weed. Thurlow Weed ran Tammany Hall in New York, the first modern American political machine of getting out the vote. And, and although Weed uh, was certainly able, nobody doubted this, he was a boss, 
He was seen as mired in East Coast corruption. And Seward was always loyal to Weed, and they'd been close political associates the entirety of Seward's career. But by being close to Weed, a lot of people said, we don't need to be tainted with this bossism, as it was known, corruption, as we call it now. So Weed is running Seward's campaign. In those days, candidates didn't even show up. Seward is out in western New York at his home, waiting to hear how Weed does at the convention in Chicago. And then the third reason is that the key to the election was seen to be electorally Indiana and Illinois, and having favored son Abraham Lincoln from Illinois would probably put him over the top, that it would be an advantage to put a local boy-makes-good kind of story on the Republican nomination. So because Seward was the boogeyman of the South, because he was mired in bossism, because of his friendship with and then thirdly, because the election was going to be determined in the West in Illinois and Indiana, Abraham Lincoln emerges surprisingly as the presidential candidate. And initially, Seward couldn't stand him or this. And for the rest of his life, he felt hard done by that he hadn't won the nomination. But a remarkable thing went on. that The Doris Kearns Goodwin book on this team of rivals is very good. That Lincoln, when he wins, has the bravery and the confidence in himself to pick a team of the best people, many of whom were rivals for his nomination and thought that they would be better at running the country than Lincoln. And Seward is top of this list. Lincoln makes him Secretary of State, easily the second most important position in the Union. And But the, the odd thing is they become friends. They're both great storytellers. They like to talk. They like to be social. And so Seward and Lincoln have this very unlikely but very close friendship that Seward is allowed in the meetings when Lincoln talks to individual cabinet members. He's the only other person allowed in the room. And so beyond being Secretary of State, his influence is far afield. He gets involved in literally every other cabinet position. But when Seward talks to Lincoln about the State Department, nobody else is allowed in the room. And that's a sign bureaucratically of how important Lincoln found Seward to be. And indeed, on the 1864 night of the election uh, during the Civil War, the two people that, that, that Lincoln has at his side, John Hay, his faithful secretary, later to become a fairly good secretary of state, and Seward, and the three of them sit and wait for the returns to come in together. And that Seward would often go to Lincoln's house. Mary Todd Lincoln, of course, hated almost everyone and made Lincoln's life hell. But Seward would come to the house unannounced and was close enough to the family that he was allowed to bring, and this matters to me, with five of them, two treasured cats to Willie, to Lincoln's sons, Willie and Tad. So he was a family friend, and they became improbably close. Um, and in many ways, Seward never got over Lincoln's assassination in April 6, 1865. So he has the support of the president, and he's seen as a very powerful Republican, and in fact, the guy who they thought would end up being president. He has all this going for him as he assumes the mantle of Secretary of State, which he acquits himself very well. Tragically, just to end the idea about Seward and Lincoln's friendship, Seward was stabbed five times in the face himself on that horrible night in April 1865 when Lincoln was killed. And when he was showing the scars to a well-wisher, he asked him what he thought of the assassination. And Seward rather heartbreakingly said, I think I also deserve the honor of dying then, that he wished he'd gone out then in a blaze of glory with Abraham Lincoln. Um, and that the time afterwards without him was an aftermath. Again, he's probably the second greatest Secretary of State of the 19th century because he realizes, unlike the laundry list blob of today, which is why they get so much wrong, the blob today, the establishment, tries to do everything, and in trying to be completist and do everything, 
They do everything badly rather than doing a few things really well, which is in essence to realist thinking. I don't want a list. Tell me the three things I absolutely have to do, the three things that I really ought to try to do, and the three things that would be nice to do on Tuesday if it worked. That by dividing up what is vital, what is important, and what is tertiary, you can actually get things done as opposed to this completest nonsense that the Wilsonians and the, and the neocons that believe in, that by doing everything, they do everything badly rather than doing a few things very well. And Seward realizes the one thing he has to do really well, above all else, the primary national interest for him as Secretary of State is to stop foreign recognition of the Confederacy. That this, this is everything. Because as he knows from the American Revolutionary story, the only reason the American colonists won their improbable victory over the British Empire was that after the Battle of Saratoga, when gentleman Johnny Burgoyne is stopped in the forests of Saratoga in April 1777, the Spanish and especially the French recognize the United States as an independent country, that they say we will give you troops, but more importantly, funding to continue the war. And both these troops and these funding were absolutely essential to the American success. And every American schoolboy at the time, let alone Seward, knew this. So in, in the, there are for independence. The Confederacy needs the support of London and Paris. And this means actively recognizing the Confederacy as a separate nation, giving them troops, ending the Union blockade, which the British Navy could have done of the South, and above all, giving them the financing of London and Paris. And there are a few things going in favor of this. London and Paris um, are sympathetic to the Confederacy because they're dependent on cotton for their textile mills. And so the South has the primary good that both London, that Paris and especially London need for textiles. So this is incredibly important. And so this would seem to lead toward this. Also, Lord Palmerston, the prime minister in England, and Napoleon III, uh, the emperor of the French, of course, are looking at North America and seeing the success, and we've talked about this in chapter one and two, of both Hamilton and then John Quincy Adams' idea that North America is going to be dominated unless we have foreign intervention by the United States. And of course, they see this by now in 1860, Palmerston and Napoleon III. Palmerston is perched uneasily to the north of the United States and Canada, which is a British dominion, and Napoleon III is in the process of setting up an empire run by the Habsburg Maximilian, but it's really a French-dominated empire with Maximilian as the face, um, the Habsburg brother of Francis Joseph in the south. And so they're looking for a chance to perch. Uh, in, in the United States' favor at the time is that foodstuffs uh, to agricultural products to London and Paris account for 40% of the total. So yes, southern cotton is important, to both the UK or, or the Great Britain at the time and, and France, but so are foodstuffs. So they are intertwined by trade with both sides. And this is what leads them to, despite having enticements to try to stay with the South and their proclivities at the time are with the South, certainly, to declare neutrality, that they say, we recognize both sides as belligerents, as fighters, but we're not gonna formally recognize the Confederacy and give them troops and a lot of money to fight and destroy the North. And although Lincoln would have preferred for them to recognize the South as just in insurrection, he can live with this in a belligerent way as consort. Until the Trent Affair. In late 1861, the, all this is about to be upended. And this is all that has to happen for the North to win. Eventually, the North will win. The North has many, many more times people 
than the South, has almost all the, the wherewithal and almost all the industry. And in fact, there's only one cannon factory, the Tredegar can, uh, Cannon Works in Richmond, in all of the South. They have one cannon factory. That's it. It's an agricultural, feudal, agrarian society. The North has all the industry and all the people. It's going to eventually win the war, no, no matter how many incompetent generals it has. And boy, it had a list. At some point, asked me over a drink, and I can run the Union generals that failed to Robert E. Lee and his genius corps commanders like Stonewall Jackson and divisional commander like A.P. Hill. But eventually, the North, just by force of numbers, is going to win and, and industrial power if, and this is the key if, that is Seward's primary point they are not they don't receive direct help from london or paris that's the key to the game so everything still looks pretty good until late 1861 when the trent affair bursts onto the scene and it's really the cuban missile crisis of the age it's the moment when everything could have gone horribly wrong a wildly overzealous union captain by the name of charles wilkes and i talk a lot about wilkes in the chapter he's great fun uh, Wilkes is the man who probably inspired Herman Melville's Captain Ahab. So to say he's monomaniacal is to put it mildly. Uh, this is Captain Ahab in real life. Charles Wilkes is the model for Melville's Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. And at gunpoint, he bundles two Confederate uh, diplomats, James Murray Mason of Virginia and John Slidell of Louisiana, off the Royal Mail steamer Trent. They're sailing, having broken the blockade in the South, in Charleston. They've gotten to Cuba, and they're going to then sail on Slidell and Murray. Murray's going to London, and Slidell is going to Paris, and they're going to try to win recognition for the South of the Confederacy. And Will, Will Wilkes decides he's going to shoot first and ask questions later. He forcibly fires over the bow of the Trent, a British ship, and goes aboard and kidnaps, and there's no other way to put it, Mason and Slidell, and sends them off to a prison in Boston. Now, Wilkes is interesting because in 1838, he has been tasked, and he, he's a man of, of significant biological bent. He joins what is the equivalent of the Royal Society in the UK. He joins the U.S. version of this. And so he's the logical choice to lead the U.S. global exploratory mission of 1838. And this, this is a boat that literally circumnavigates the world, and the specimens they collect from the exploratory mission of 1838 form the basis to the Smithsonian Institution that we so enjoy today and such a jewel in the crown in Washington today. Um, Wilkes has, on paper, and this is the tragedy of Wilkes, he does very good work. He's the first person to see Antarctica and know it's a separate continent. So you can actually say, you can argue that he is the discoverer of Antarctica. Others had gotten there first, but they hadn't known what they were seeing, whereas Wilkes charts 1,500 miles of the Antarctic coastline. 1,500 miles. And in fact, if you look at a map of Antarctica, and again, everybody have their globe out when we talk, if you look at a map, you can see Wilkes Land, that, that one of the, the, the peninsulas in Antarctica is named after Charles Wilkes because of this, this work that he did that was so incredibly helpful. So you think he'd come home to New York, and he doesn't get back from it. The, the trip takes four years, from 1838 to 1842, when his little flotilla finally makes it back to New York. And you think he'd be met by great hoopla and rejoicing, and instead he's immediately embroiled in controversy and actually has to endure a series of court-martials because in Captain Ahab fashion, he's been so crazy in dealing with his men. He basically court-martials most of his officers and treats his men to barbaric punishments of whipping that are not fully deserved and, in fact, is censured 
by the Navy for doing so. And they park him on the side. They don't, they don't get rid of him. He's acquitted of most of the charges, despite everyone thinking he's nuts. Um, but he's convicted of the lesser charge of being cruel to his men. And so he's tasked, really, from 1842 on, for the next 20 years, he's writing these voluminous reports of his trip. And he's parked to the side. He's no longer at the front rank of an, uh, of an officer. Before the trip, Wilkes had been seen as one of the most promising officers in the U.S. Navy. After the trip, he's in the library writing up his notes, uh, getting promoted, but no longer in the thick of it. And Wilkes, of course, has tremendous frustration and fury at this that no one recognizes him. And, and again, one of his officers said, and I quote in the book, that the problem with Wilkes is despite being brave, and not stupid, he's monomaniacal and thinks he's always and forever right. And uh, this gets in his way over and over again. Well, now he sees as he's aboard the San Jacinto, sitting off the bays of Havana in Cuba, he sees Murray and Slidell. He knows they've broken through the blockade. They've made it to Cuba. They're on their way on the Trent to London. And he's going to stop this and regain the glory that was stolen from him. And of course, guys like this cause no end of trouble in history. So on November 8th, 1861, Wilkes on the Senate fires over the bow and takes the Slidell and uh, Murray, I'm sorry, Mason, James Murray Mason, related to George Mason, by the way, one of the great thinkers in American history and a signer of the Declaration. Uh, also, this guy, James Murray Mason's far less uh, decent. He's a, he's a rabid racist, among other things, which gets in the way and is a real problem. Um, so this is a problem for the South, that he's intemperate and, and doesn't make a very good impression in London. But he, he bundles them off to prison in Boston. And in the North, there's huge rejoicing at Wilkes' actions. This is after the first major battle of the Civil War, the first battle of Manassas. And in the first battle of Manassas, the South wins. The Northern Army basically runs away. It's called the Great Skedaddle and makes it back to Washington. So there's doom and gloom in Washington at this first defeat of the big battle. And this is seen as a counterbalance that the Wilkes has gone aboard and arrested these envoys. Um, however, in Britain, there's fury. They're a neutral country between belligerents and at gunpoint. Uh, Union troops have boarded a British ship and kidnapped two Southern envoys, taking British sovereign decisions and basically spitting on them. And this is when Lincoln, during this process, famously says, one war at a time, because the British are threatening war over this. This is where this could all get entirely out of hand. And they're making both sides belligerents, being neutral. This is all on the line. This is the only, literally the only way the South can win the Civil War. And because of the stupidity and Captain Ahab-like monomaniacal lunacy of Wilkes, now the Union position in the world is in danger. This is the ultimate primary interest. This is not a laundry list. This is what matters. And Seward jumps to it. Because in November, at the end of November, the Prime Minister, so angry that when he hears about what happened with the Trent Affair, he throws his hat on the cabinet table and says, I don't know to the rest of the cabinet, he says, I don't know whether you are going to stand this, but I'll be damned if I do. And he gives Lincoln seven days to reply to his ultimatum, which is to apologize for this gross act, to release the envoys. And Seward sees this note in mid-1861, and now he has a terrible, terrible problem. 
Because if Seward doesn't give in to the British, they may well decide, and the French will follow, to recognize the Confederacy, to give them troops down from Canada, to destroy the Union blockade with the British Navy, to give them troops, and more importantly, loans from the city of London, the commercial center of the world, with the French following suit and moving up from Mexico. This is a catastrophe that has to be avoided at all costs. On the other hand, the Union public opinion is totally behind Wills. So what does Seward do? How does he cut the Gordian knot? He has to give way to the British and the French without starting a war. As Lincoln famously said, we can only fight one war at a time. Um, and to fight two would be to lose both. He has to give way, but do so in such a way that he doesn't turn public opinion, which is rapidly for this, against the administration. And Seward starts by following the great realist precept that you should never do what your enemy wants you to do. I think this all the time in my own political maneuverings. Never, ever do what your enemy wants you to do. And get your ego out of it. Think things through. Never do what your enemy wants you to do. The South, of course, wants him to be bellicose to London, Great Britain, and to France. And then they get the recognition they so desperately need. So he knows he has to avoid that as a primary national interest. He has to admit fault without admitting fault. And this becomes a real problem. But fortunately, Wilkes, in being nuts, has made a mistake in terms of maritime law, the international law of the day. The mar maritime law says that if you seize a ship with contraband on it, and Wilkes was saying these two guys were possessions, in essence, contraband stuff, you have to go to a port and let that neutral port rule on your decision. That's how maritime law worked all over the world, that you could seize contraband, but only if a neutral port then decided if you're right or you're wrong. So, 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 so do this, he just goes on board and basically kidnaps the two guys at gunpoint in front of the growling British. And this is a violation of maritime law. So Seward has his opening. Seward can say, look, the United States, and this is true, has historically always been for maritime law, which protects weaker countries against stronger countries. And in fact, the War of 1812 was largely caused because the British would do precisely what Wilkes did. They impressed sailors. They would go on board Union ships and at gunpoint take people away and force them into the British Navy. It's kidnapping. And the Americans would complain and nothing would be done that the United States had always been a champion of maritime law. And Wilkes has broken maritime law, which is a cornerstone of American foreign policy thinking. So it's not that the American government have done this. Wilkes has exceeded his orders by not following maritime law. And this is the way that ingeniously Seward manages to cut the Gordian knot. And so there's a key Christmas Day meeting of the cabinet. Quite surprisingly, Lincoln is somewhat reluctant to even do this because he doesn't like giving way and worries about public opinion in the North and doesn't like giving way uh, to the British, who, who he didn't much like, um, as Lord Palmerston didn't much like Americans. But Seward carries the day because Lincoln admits that he doesn't see any other way out of it, and no one else in the cabinet is for this harder suicidal position. And so an agreement is reached whereby the United States releases quietly Slidell and Mason, who then go to respectively on British ships uh, th that are escorted by the British Navy uh, to both London and Paris to continue their mission. The United States does not apologize because the government has not made a mistake. It is merely Wilkes, Captain Ahab, who has exceeded his orders. 
And in doing so, he manages to cut the knot. American opinion, is public opinion, is okay with this in the North because they begin to realize, as Sword argues, that, that, that this is an American principle, that maritime law has kept the United States and made them very prosperous from being 13 colonies, that America has boomed because of its trade, because of people protecting its ships, and that, of course, this is a, a cornerstone of American foreign policy and commercial policy thinking, and Sword is merely upholding American doctrine. So it's Wilkes who made the mistake, not the United States. No apology. The British accept this. Interestingly enough, Prince Albert, who was tragically to die in December 1861, he counsels Lord Palmerston because he's seen as a foreign policy expert to take a softer line that the Americans will see sense. Charles Francis Adams, yes, another Adams, the grandson of John Adams, the son of John Quincy, is in effect, they weren't called this at the time, but is the U.S. ambassador uh, to London. And he manages to calm things down, to pour oil on the water and calm things down. And Palmerston accepts this, and calamity is averted because uh, Seward doesn't do what his enemy wants him to do and sees the primary interest is above everything. And he figures out an ingenious way of doing nothing less than saving the Union. And so this is our third realist precept, which is that you act or don't act dependent entirely on the American national interest, that it's not a laundry list. It's about the three or four things that really matter. And by focusing like a laser beam on what really mattered, Seward manages to save the Union. Um, as I said before, I mean, Seward plays a tragic role in the assassination of Lincoln in April 1865 when Lincoln is being murdered by John Wilkes Booth in Ford's Theater. By the way, I'm going to be staying at the Great Riggs Bank Hotel in the Ford's Theater district of D.C. And John, good night, and I, my, 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 Sundance to my book, Cassidy, will probably go and see the Lincoln Assassination Museum. Whenever you're in Washington, see it. It's an amazing museum. And the Ford's Theater District looks much like it did when Lincoln was there in 1865. It's a wonderful area, my favorite part of Washington. I always hang out there uh, uh, and have meetings there. And please do go see it. You'll, you'll love the Lincoln Museum. It's wonderful. Um, but while Lincoln's being assassinated down the road from my hotel in Ford's Theater, uh, Seward is recovering from a very painful accident in, in a carriage, and he's broken his collarbone. So he's in bed, and one of John Wilkes Booth's minions, Lewis Powell, who's a huge six foot three, six foot four, in an era where Americans were much smaller, about five foot eight for a man, he says that he's delivering medicine for Seward. He's actually been sent by Booth to murder the Secretary of State, who, other than Lincoln, is the dominant figure in the cabinet. Booth, of course, is a pro-Southern renegade, heartbroken at the destruction of the Confederacy and a famous actor. His family are the most famous acting family, but Booth was not in the league with his brothers, but is seen as an action hero, really, of the time and, and did Shakespeare in a very physical way. And he has a huge following in the South. And he's heartbroken at the, at the destruction of the Confederacy. He's determined to obliterate the people he thinks that have ruined his people. He kills Lincoln. Uh, he sends off other minions to kill the vice president, Andrew Johnson. They don't even get to the door, but Lewis Powell does. He says he's delivering medicine. He manages to get by Seward's daughter and his son when George F. Robinson, uh, a union private who's been sent to keep an eye on Seward to guard him, uh, manages to jump on the back of Powell, this hulking figure, pull him away, but not before Powell stabs Seward in a manic frenzy five times in the face. Extraordinary. Uh, the collarbone could be seen. It was The cuts were so deep. And st stabs Seward five times in the face before he's subdued. 
Uh, Powell is then, along with the rest of the conspirators, hanged soon after. But Seward is disfigured by this and, more importantly, disheartened by the death of his great friend, Abraham Lincoln. And in fact, Seward's wife never overcomes the Fanny, who he loved greatly and was a leading abolitionist on her own, dies in response to the attack on her husband and the death of the president, never recovers, dies in June shortly thereafter. And so Seward is left with the totally out of his depth, Andrew Johnson. He serves Johnson and in fact serves him very well. Seward's folly, he, he buys Alaska from Tsarist Russia, one of the great land purchases of all time, because Seward in the tradition of Hamilton and John Quincy Adams thinks that North America is destined to be dominated by the United States and cer certainly adding resource rich and geostrategically important Alaska to the United States is a huge step in the right direction here. So Seward serves even under the utterly awful presidency of Andrew Johnson. He serves with great distinction um, and then dies and makes it to retirement and dies soon thereafter after going around the world on a trip. But Seward deserves to be remembered and Tarantinoized because he never did what his enemy wants him to do. And in the Trent Affair, he realizes that the decision to act or not to act, it isn't about acting and it isn't about not acting. It depends on the American national interest. And in not acting and in not starting a war with the British and the French, which could, which could easily have been done over the Trent Affair, William H. Seward has claim to saving the Union along with Abraham Lincoln. There you go. Hope you enjoyed. That's what I was thinking about. Chapter three, one of my favorites. We have Captain Ahab, we have Abraham Lincoln, and we are attempting to Tarantinoize the great William H. Seward. Only act or not act depending on your national interests ought to be one of the precepts as we then, at the end of this process, look at how we're going to re revolutionize American foreign policy. But that's the precept to take away. Hope you enjoyed this. I enjoy doing it very much. This is great fun for me to go back on what I've just been thinking about for the last year, year and a half and sharing it with our community. Again, please, please do, please do sign up for the pre-order of the Amazon book today and help us defeat the dreaded algorithm and the media events start next week. I will continue what we're doing next week when I return to the nation's capital and hang out in the Ford's Theater District. And maybe John and I'll just make it to the Lincoln Museum. Take care and do pre-order The Last Best Hope. Thanks very much.